Good evening. Thank you. Leonard Bernstein, or as some people were saying out in the lobby, isn't it Leonard Bernstein? And the answer is yes, it is both. And we'll talk about that. But I grew up saying Bernstein, so forgive me. I'm not saying that's the correct pronunciation. I'm just saying in advance, that's what I'll be saying tonight. Uh, Bernstein was born in 1918 in Boston. And uh, he quickly, as all of us know, developed into not just a great musician, but a true Renaissance man, a, a Leonardo da Vinci of music, somebody who had such a wide range of talent that it worked both for him and against him, as we shall see. But obviously, largely, it worked for him and it worked for all of us. The thing that makes, say, Leonardo da Vinci different from Leonard Bernstein is that we all have lifetimes that intersect with Bernstein and we know what the modern era is. So all of the facets of technology that changed the way we hear music, the way we approach art, the way we approach each other happened in Bernstein's lifetime and had a crucial role on how he developed and how music coming through him developed. All right, so back to his childhood. His parents were both Russian Jewish emigres who met once they had each come separately to the United States. His father, Sam, Samuel, was the son of a Hasidic rabbi and his mother's family was um, in the baking trade. So we find them meeting in Boston. They have three children, ultimately. Um, Leonard Bernstein is the oldest of the three, and um, he quickly showed off his uh, remarkable abilities when his Aunt Clara left a piano in their home. So it was a little upright piano, but uh, he went to it and spent hours and hours uh, every day playing this piano and had a remarkable ear. So Irving Berlin's song, Blue Skies, was on uh, the radio at the time. And he quickly picked this up, not just the melody, but the harmony, and he could play all this. But his father, Samuel, did not feel that uh, music was something that serious people pursued. So he did everything he could to discourage young Leonard from, from playing the piano or taking lessons, certainly. However, Leonard shopped around and found somebody who would give him lessons for a dollar an hour. And his father agreed that if he paid a quarter, he would pay the other 75 cents. And uh, so the weekly allowance went into the piano lessons. Now, Leonard Bernstein's mother loved music, Jenny. Jenny Bernstein would just cry as her son would sit down at the piano, and whether he was playing Blue Skies or a Chopin Nocturne, uh, it, was, it was music to her ears, so to speak. And he uh, developed, of course, a, a very wide repertoire because his ear was so good and everything he heard, he could reproduce. Pretty soon, the dollar an hour piano teacher realized that Bernstein needed something greater, like a three dollar an hour piano teacher. <laughs> And then his father really put his foot down. So after much negotiation, this was finally worked out. So Leonard could go to a real piano teacher. 
And of course, his progress was very quick, and he started writing pieces as well. Now, by this time, his little sister, Shirley, was old enough that she could play the piano, and he adored his little sister all, all of their lives. They, they remained very close. Uh, he, he started to teach her, and uh, pretty soon they were playing duets, and so uh, there, a, little, a little musical family was developing. And then the third sibling, Burton, came along 13 years after Leonard. He didn't figure into this musical equation quite so much. In any case, young Leonard went to the Boston Latin School that was founded in the 1630s and had a wonderful classical education there. Music was not a part of the curriculum, but he made it a part of the curriculum. Uh, not only was he very talented in composing and in playing, but he also was endlessly energetic. So it was typical that if there was a school play, he would write all the music. And if there was a summer camp, he would organize all the kids into doing a production of an opera or a musical. In fact, in Sharon, Massachusetts, the people there looked forward every summer to Leonard Bernstein's productions. The first summer he did this, it was Carmen in drag, where everybody, <laughs> everybody cross-dressed, and, and they sang Carmen half in French and half in Yiddish. So this, this was so popular that it was followed the following year by his first uh, Gilbert and Sullivan version, which was HMS Pinafore, half in English and half in Yiddish. Uh, of course, his parents spoke Yiddish more often than they spoke English, and he thought it was really funny to have a sort of hybrid language that was half Yiddish and half English. So he and his sister and their closest friends all spoke this language, which they called Ribernian. Um, one of the kids turned out to be Sid Raymond, who many years later would be the orchestrator of many of Bernstein's works. So it was an illustrious group of children playing together. Later on in high school, Bernstein began to compose seriously, and because he had absorbed both popular music and serious music, by which I mean the contemporary music being written at that time, Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Bartok, he felt a pull between these two styles. He couldn't write in those two opposite styles at the same time. He tried at the age of 14 to compose a piano trio. Uh, I can play you a little bit of this piece for piano, violin, and cello. And you can tell that it's inspired by uh, Schoenberg or Webern, and that uh, Bernstein follows the compositional rules of these composers rigorously in this piece. It's not exactly a 12-tone row, but the imitation is very typical of serial music, and his father just thought, we're paying $3 an hour for something like that. <laughs> this was the conflict that was to last throughout Bernstein's life. He composed also at this age, or just a couple years later, a violin sonata, a clarinet sonata, again, 
following the rigorous rules of contemporary composition. However, in the clarinet sonata and in the violin sonata, at certain moments, jazz creeps in. Now, what is jazz doing in the middle of a piece styled after Bartok and Schoenberg, you may ask? Well, it was in Bernstein's ear, and he was constantly a sponge absorbing all of this different musical language around him. However, he had no technical ability to synthesize the two. After Boston Latin School, where he was an extremely good student, he went to Harvard. Now, Harvard had some tremendous music teachers, but as Bernstein himself said, you could spend the whole day in the music building and never hear a note of music played. The music at Harvard was theoretical. So the professors were lecturing about the compositional styles of Paul Hindemith and uh, every new composer Bernstein was absorbing all of this, but he single-handedly made live music happen at Harvard. And he was, needless to say, a very enthusiastic promoter of getting together and doing concerts. So he also had the great fortune that uh, Dimitri Mitropoulos, who was the music director of the New York Philharmonic, um, came to Harvard to speak. And this was a seminal experience for Bernstein because he had never seen a real orchestra conductor. In fact, he'd only seen one real orchestra concert. He'd seen the Boston Symphony perform a concert which, among other things, concluded with Ravel's Bolero. And when he heard Bolero, he thought that was just about the greatest thing. Even his father, who uncharacteristically took him to the concert, said uh, the same thing. He, the, the two of them enthused about Bolero all the way home. So here was Bernstein suddenly working at Harvard and meeting Dimitri Mitropoulos, who was a giant of conducting in the 1940s. Bernstein realized that he needed to do more than study music theoretically. And Mitropoulos, who saw in Bernstein's playing and his ability to read orchestra scores at the piano, that this young man certainly had a lot of promise, although he didn't know exactly where that talent would lead. So he invited him to leave school for a week and just watch him prepare a concert at the New York Philharmonic. Well, Bernstein didn't check this with anybody. He simply disappeared from Harvard for a week and came back saying that his whole world had changed as if a million windows had been opened and now he knew he was going to be a conductor. Everything about Bernstein was perfect for conducting. He had an amazing physical ability. He had an innate sense of rhythm. He had an ability to memorize entire orchestra scores very quickly. And most of all, he had a burning desire to communicate with everybody all the time. There's a, a story much later in life that Bernstein was flying with an orchestra and they were going to Europe. They passed over Greenland and one of the players said, oh, look, and Bernstein said, who cares? There's nobody to talk to down there. <laughs> so his driving force was the desire to talk to people about the things that mattered to him. He cared about a lot more than just music. 
uh, Bernstein's daughter Jamie said much later that uh, it wasn't just that Bernstein was a wonderful teacher, it was that he was a wonderful learner. He was interested in everything, French literature, legal policies, uh, new physics discoveries, everything in life interested Leonard Bernstein. And he tried to incorporate everything he learned uh, into the music that he performed and into the music that he wrote. So even though he had this one week at the New York Philharmonic, it was clear to Bernstein that he needed to be around other performing musicians. When he left Harvard, he applied to be a student at Curtis. Now the Curtis Institute had, has the finest musicians in the country and it has no tuition. So although his father was still fighting against him, Curtis seemed like a reasonable possibility. <laughs> and Bernstein had the opportunity to go into the conducting class of Carl, uh, sorry, of uh, Fritz Reiner. Now Fritz Reiner, uh, along with Metropolis, was one of the greats uh, conducting at this time. And he also had the extraordinary good fortune to meet Serge Kusevitsky. So Bernstein was really being mentored by the best and the brightest that the early 1940s had to offer in this country. Fritz Reiner had perhaps the smallest beat pattern of any great conductor. He, he felt that if the orchestra wasn't watching him, he would fire them. And as a result, they did watch him very closely. So Bernstein had his own much more exuberant way of conducting, and Fritz Reiner had the wisdom to let Bernstein develop in his own way. Rudolf Serkin was also teaching at Curtis at that time and felt that Bernstein was too unruly to be in his piano studio. So I think fortunately, Bernstein went into the piano studio of Isabella Vengerova, who was a wonderful Russian pianist and quite a taskmaster. But she really taught Bernstein a kind of discipline at the keyboard that heretofore he had not had. He could read and improvise with such facility that his versions of famous piano pieces were really sort of transcriptions, you know, Chopin or Beethoven or whatever, uh, processed through Bernstein's mind and then turned into a piano piece. He was much more careful about performing the works of contemporary composers accurately. And his favorite, all-time favorite piece at this time when he was, say, 21, was Aaron Copland's Piano Variations. This was Bernstein's party piece. He said he could clear a room in less than two minutes with this piece. <laughs> and then one night he was playing this piece and somebody amazingly did not clear the room and Bernstein, while he's playing this fiendishly complex piece, said, why are you staying? I, everybody hates this piece. And, the person who stayed said, well, I wrote that piece. <laughs> and Bernstein and Aaron Copeland really became lifelong friends. Copeland's about 18 years older than Bernstein. He was born in 1900. But the two of them had such a wonderful, honest relationship. You know, Bernstein would show Copeland a piece that he had written, and Copeland would say, well, these two bars are great, and here you're imitating Hindemith, and here you're imitating Bartok, and here you're imitating Stravinsky, and oh, look, here's some Prokofiev. He was right, of course. So he encouraged Bernstein to find those few bars where the young composer had his own voice. 
That is, after all, a difficult thing, especially when you have a musical mind that is so absorbent, because it's very easy to hear something and write it down six months later thinking that it's coming from the part of your mind that is original, when in fact it is a slight alteration to something written by another composer. Bernstein didn't hesitate to tell the senior composer, who was already a well-known, famous professional, when he thought uh, Copeland's works fell a little short. <laughs> really, sweetie, he writes to him in a letter, that last movement just has to go. So Copeland was very patient with Bernstein. Bernstein thought always in extremes. He would go to a concert and be horrified by the behavior of the audience or by the reaction of a critic the next day, and Copeland would write back and he would say, perspective, perspective, perspective. So he was really able to keep Leonard uh, calm during this time. Well, Curtis was a fantastic training grounds for Bernstein because he did suddenly have the opportunity to work with an orchestra. And work with them he did, because he could learn these scores rapidly, accurately, and what is more extraordinary, had the ability to work with orchestra musicians in a way that even when he was 22, they wanted to play for him. You know, years later, people in the New York Philharmonic said, we worshipped Toscanini, but we loved Lenny. It was just an ability that he had, which I think is almost unique. I don't know of any other composer who anecdotally inspired the kind of devotion in his players that Bernstein did. He had a kind of humility when he approached music that suddenly we were all discovering it together. Let's try this melody this way. What if you keep playing loud when it's, you know, and, and, and suddenly everybody was pulling together and the results, as we all know, were fantastic. Bernstein was nevertheless having to earn a living while he was at Curtis. So he would arrange piano pieces. Uh, if he heard a jazz arrangement on the radio, he could write it down. And so he would get engaged to do things like this. However, that's not what he ultimately wanted to do with his life. And fortunately, uh, he had a fantastic break because in 1943, Bruno Walter was going to conduct a concert with the New York Philharmonic. And uh, Bruno Walter's program was a Schumann Manfred Overture and Miklos Rosa's Violin Concerto, Richard Strauss's Don Quixote, and Meisterzinger Overture by Wagner. So not an easy program. But the day before the performance, Bruno Walter was so sick that it was clear to the management of the New York Philharmonic that he would not be conducting that program. And so they tried to get in touch with Artur Rodzinski, who was the other conductor, the, the principal, and uh, Rodzinski wasn't gonna make it either. So Bernstein, at a few hours notice, learned these four pieces, went to see the ailing Bruno Walter to find out just how he did certain details, and conducted a concert that afternoon. Now, needless to say, the musicians of the New York Philharmonic can play a concert with no conductor at all, and their assumption was that somebody would be standing there and they would simply play the music. But from all accounts, the first three chords of the Manfred Overture were enough for them to realize that, in fact, this extraordinary young man would be leading that concert. And uh, it, it got better and better. If you watch YouTube, you can listen to the whole concert. <laughs> Can't see the video, unfortunately, there wasn't one. 
but uh, you can hear Bernstein's inaugural concert with the New York Philharmonic. Well, this was one of those life-changing experiences that opened up dozens more conducting opportunities, both at the New York Philharmonic and at the Boston Symphony and at the St. Louis Symphony and the Detroit Symphony. So suddenly, Bernstein had this incredible wealth of opportunities to conduct first-rate American orchestras. Now, I've been saying Bernstein, and I've said it a hundred times already, so let's just talk about that for a minute. In Austria and in Germany, we would say Bernstein, but in Ukraine, where his parents came from, we would say Bernstein, so it would only be fair to his parents if we called him Leonard Bernstein, and uh, he used Bernstein for most of his life. Is that enough on that? I just want to make sure everybody knows <laughs> there's a legitimate case for either pronunciation of his name. Now, we see two sides of Leonard B. We've had the, the pianist and the conductor, but what's happening to Leonard the composer? Well, around the same time that he has this opportunity with the New York Philharmonic in 1943, he writes uh, his first major symphonic work. And this symphony number one is called the Jeremiah Symphony. In the third movement, he uses a text in Hebrew from the book of Jeremiah and truthfully begins to show the musical schizophrenia, which is what it is at this point in his life, that haunts him for decades. The Jeremiah Symphony is a very contemporary thorny piece and echoes Stravinsky and Bartok. It opens like this. Then it takes off into a horn solo, but the opening is clearly derivative of the Rite of Spring, which had always been one of Bernstein's favorite pieces. And to offset this very austere quality, uh, the second movement has Hebraic dances in it. And then the third movement is the slow lamentation. Um, you can probably, knowing some of the Bernstein music that you do know, recognize these harmonies as things you hear in his later works. Also a very typical Bela Bartok uh, use of uh, something against the major chord, a half step away, but in the bass. So this work was very well received by critics and Bernstein actually had the opportunity to conduct it and perform it himself with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, thanks to his mentor, Serge Kusevitsky. 
Kusevitsky was undoubtedly a blessing in Bernstein's life, but he strongly urged Leonard Bernstein to stay away from the kind of popular music that he had been writing, to stay away from jazz, and above all, to stay away from Broadway. <laughs> However, composers do not really make so much money writing austere symphonies. They make a lot of money writing for Broadway. And Leonard Bernstein, needless to say, decided that he would do that. So his ballet, Fancy Free, turned into his first musical, which is called On the Town. It was just done in Manhattan again. Uh, but I bet many of you know this, New York, New York, wonderful town. The Bronx is up, but the battery down. The people ride through a hole in the ground. But let's listen to this theme. Right? Now, is that by Bernstein? Let's see, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony. Or, for that matter, Brahms' First Piano Concerto. So, once again, Bernstein is drawing on the best sources that there are, but he's beginning to integrate classical with popular, which is the genius that he made uniquely his own. Think, if you will, about Aaron Copland, who certainly is one of the greatest American composers. His works are either in the thorny contemporary mode, or they are boisterous imitations of American cowboy songs or folk songs, like the Quaker hymn, Tis a Gift to be Simple, or the cowboy music in Rodeo, Billy the Kid. Bernstein begins with New York, New York, to find a way to put the two together. On the Town was a huge success, and not long after, he wrote another musical, this time he wrote the words as well, to Peter Pan. Peter Pan was not uh, as great a success as On the Town. And then there was a musical called Wonderful Town by the same people, the, the words were by the same people who wrote On the Town, uh, Adolph Green and Betty Comden. They were a wonderful team of librettists. They weren't married, but people often thought they were because they were uh, an inseparable Broadway team for 50 years. And Adolph Green actually was also one of Bernstein's roommates in Manhattan. So they had a, a connection that went way back. Now, I think that Bernstein was really torn by this. You probably know that Arthur Sullivan, who wrote all those terrific operettas with Gilbert, uh, never was totally happy that he had success as a popular composer. He wanted to be the English Bach or the English Mendelssohn. And uh, fortunately, he had people he trusted say, just be the English Sullivan and that's enough. <laughs> Bernstein had the same uh, conflict in that he wanted to be loved for his serious music, but people didn't love his serious music very much. On the other hand, his Broadway music was tremendously successful, hummable, singable, and sellable. So he quickly became a, a wealthy man, and of course, appeared in newspapers and magazines, and when television came, television. 
And poor old Sam Bernstein, his dad, was often criticized for not supporting this young genius. And Sam Bernstein just said, how was I to know my son was Leonard Bernstein? <laughs> so Sam, of course, became a much more supportive father once he realized that he didn't need to write checks to his son anymore. Sam Bernstein ran a very successful business that supplied hair products all over the Boston area. And uh, so pretty soon Sam Bernstein would start going to uh, concerts that his son was conducting. I'm not quite sure why Bernstein decided to do this, but in 1953, he thought that the world needed a sort of autobiographical opera about how bad his parents' relationship was. <laughs> so, what can I say? Psychoanalysis was just sort of taking New York by storm, and he'd spent thousands of hours on an analyst's couch, and he expressed himself in music, so sure enough, in 1953, he wrote this little opera called Trouble in Tahiti. Trouble in Tahiti is a one-act opera that tells the story of a young married couple, say in their 30s, Sam and Dinah. Now, Sam is Bernstein's dad's name. His mother's name was uh, Jenny, but Dinah was his grandmother, so he just you know, removed it a little bit. However, Sam and Dinah are constantly arguing, and they talk about Junior, who of course would have been Lenny, um, but Junior never appears in the opera. The idea is that in some random suburban community, this couple has wealth but have ceased to have an emotional connection. And Dinah, who is left alone every day when her husband goes to work, decides that she's going to go see one of those new picture shows. And the picture show is Trouble in Tahiti. So she does go to the movie, but when she gets home, her husband and she have yet another fight. And he, in an attempt to reconcile, says, well, let's go to a movie. How about this new one, Trouble in Tahiti? And she, she can't say, I saw it three hours ago, so they go. And uh, in the course of this Trouble in Tahiti, uh, the opera, she sings about how she wishes life could be. And she imagines that there's a garden where uh, suddenly there's harmony and grace and love. I'm gonna just sing you a little excerpt of this. Uh, if you know it, feel free to sing along. I just, I want you to know um, the other side of Bernstein, this exuberant man with seemingly limitless energy uh, feels somehow disconnected and unhappy and writes about it all the time talks about it to his shrink all the time, and puts it into his operas. So this is a little bit of trouble in Tahiti. I brought a lot. I didn't know what you'd want. <laughs> Just in case. Standing in a garden, a garden gone to seed, choked with every kind of weed. 
There were twisted trees around me, all black against the sky, black and bare and dead and dry, and so forth. But then she comes to the dream she has of a beautiful garden. I remember every word. There is a garden. Come with me. Come with me. A shining garden. Come and see. Come and see. Their love will teach us harmony and grace. Harmony and grace. Then love will lead us to a quiet place. The thing is, when Bernstein started to write about a place that for him was peaceful and beautiful, he uses a completely tonal, lyric, romantic language. So, although he has the ability to imitate the styles of any other great composers and has the intellectual power to follow through any contemporary style, his default setting is beautiful song and beautiful melody. However, he's already become one of the most famous musical figures in the United States. And critics do not respect people who write beautiful tunes. They respect people who write thorny contemporary avant-garde pieces. So uh, this is less true now. But, but in, in the, the 50s, it was, it was a given that uh, the more people disliked your music and walked out of the concert hall, the more respectable it was. <laughs> so he really had to fight this, this battle constantly. Now, Bernstein had a wonderful opportunity. Uh, what in 1947 was called the Palestine Philharmonic, and when Israel was granted statehood in 1948 became the Israel Philharmonic, was an orchestra that adored him, and he adored them, and he went every chance he possibly could to conduct this orchestra. So they made wonderful recordings together. He never charged the Israel Philharmonic a penny to the end of his life. He would just go there and conduct, and they would have a marvelous time together. And one year they said, you must write a violin concerto for Isaac Stern. Bernstein had a lot of other things going on, but of course he said, I'd be thrilled. And every so often they would check in with him and say, how is the violin concerto coming? <laughs> of course it wasn't coming. <laughs> However, Bernstein once said that the great recipe for inspiration was a certain amount of preparation and not enough time. And uh, he worked very well against a tight deadline. So finally, in the last two weeks, he tore off this violin concerto for Isaac Stern called Serenade for Violin and Orchestra in Five Movements. And it is truly a beautiful piece. Uh, it is not true that it takes longer to write a great piece, apparently. When, when we think of other great composers, you know, some of the best pieces have been written in record time. So this piece was drawn on Plato's Symposium. 
seven characters from Plato's Symposium, which is a dialogue about love, all kinds of love. Bernstein was probably thoroughly homosexual, although he identified himself as bisexual. Um, his wife, Felicia, wrote to him, you're a homosexual man, it's fine. I would not want you to try to be something different from what you are. I think that would only make our life more difficult. So you be Leonard Bernstein, and I'm happy to be your loving wife. He was very conflicted in a lot of areas. Uh, at that time, it was not easy to be a gay man, and he certainly tried in his public persona to keep that concealed from the public. He tried to be a serious composer of modern music, but he really wanted to be writing Broadway shows, and he tried to be a very deep spiritual thinker, but he really loved to stay up till five every morning, get drunk, and go dancing. So <laughs> the remarkable thing is that he integrated all of those things to the extent that he did. I think that uh, in many ways, it's, it's a great success story, not only in terms of being one of the 20th century's greatest musicians, but resolving some of the biggest conflicts that, that uh, trouble, trouble all of us. Bernstein did write this serenade for Isaac Stern, as I said. I want to play you a little bit of it, and I was just taking that digression to say, this is all about love, erotic love, platonic love, every kind of love, and uh, this particular movement is the, the center of the whole work, a slow lyrical piece that I think combines contemporary, what we would call serious music, with true lyric, melodic outpouring. Here's the violin solo coming in. This one melody just keeps arching on and on. I actually got to um, conduct this piece, this one movement of this piece once. I was in a conductor's institute in the 1980s in South Carolina, and I had known of the name Eugene Fodor 
a great violinist from the early 80s who seemingly disappeared from the face of the earth and somehow our, our conducting teacher, Harold Farberman, had brought him in and I was to conduct him in this movement. And just as we finished, two policemen appeared at the back of the hall, <laughs> along with his parole officer. <laughs> so it lasted just long enough. He, he, he had a certain amount of drug problems. But boy, could he play this serenade. Bernstein decided to write a second symphony and he drew on a long poem by W.H. Auden, whom he knew, uh, called The Age of Anxiety. Bernstein said at one point that no new serious art can be anything but depressing art, which I think is, is not true for everybody, but it was true for him. Um, when he began to explore what he felt and was not the exuberant side of himself that wanted to do Broadway musicals and jazz, uh, he wanted to express his personal torment. And this age of anxiety is a sort of gigantic piano concerto, a symphony with a hugely uh, difficult piano part that explores everything and even at one point has a long scale that goes down octaves and octaves to the bottom note of the piano, which in Bernstein's description is how he musically depicts delving into the subconscious. So fortunately, because the piece would be rather a grim 40 minutes, at some point the uh, musical language turns to jazz and uh, it's as if the person in the story who finds themselves descending into the depths of depression decides it would be better to get drunk and go dancing. This is actually in the poem. I mean, this is in W.H. Auden's poem that's then represented by Bernstein. So in a sense, he puts his own anxieties into this symphony. Uh, must I be so serious and in being serious realize that I'm just depressed about everything in my life or could I just go have a good time? This, this theme played out in, in Bernstein's actual life as well, of course. He had by this time a daughter, uh, Jamie Bernstein. Ultimately, he and Felicia had three children. And uh, Felicia is constantly writing him letters. Um, I know that uh, you're the famous conductor, Leonard Bernstein, but are you ever coming home? <laughs> and uh, he would write her, you know, very poetically and very f feelingly, but uh, no, he wasn't, he wasn't coming home. Now, 1956, Bernstein works with Lillian Hellman, and he's thrilled about this collaboration, such a wonderful, serious writer. Her idea was to take Voltaire's short story, Candide, and turn it into an opera. Well, Lillian Hellman turned out to be a difficult collaborator. In the end, Candide had no fewer than seven people working on the libretto all at once, including Bernstein himself, uh, Richard Wilbur, John Latouche, a very young Stephen Sondheim, and uh, a couple of others. And the result was an opera that has so many wonderful, delightful things in it, but doesn't really hold together. Consequently, there have been about half a dozen versions of Candide, trying to patch up the inherent difficulties in the work. And any one of them is thoroughly enjoyable, but uh, none of them really make sense in the end. <laughs> Perhaps because Candide is not 
perfect opera material, um, the idea being that while tragedies happen all around us, can we believe in the philosophers who are telling us that everything is for the best in this best of all possible worlds? Uh, the heroine of the opera, of course, Cunegonde, has the uh, show-stopping piece of Candide, which also figures into the overture. And uh, I think if I just play a little bit of it, you'll probably recognize it. The, the New York Philharmonic used to play the Candide Overture with Bernstein conducting, and after Bernstein died, it became a tradition to play this music with no conductor, pretending that he was there uh, as an honor to him, because uh, every year on his birthday, they pay this tribute to him. So I gave away the next part of the story, which is that the year after Candide, Bernstein indeed did become the music director of the New York Philharmonic, one of the most important conducting positions in the world, and one which he took very seriously. Now, when I say he took it very seriously, I don't just mean he conducted really well, which of course he did, but he also felt that it was his job entrusted to him as being the music director of one of the world's most significant orchestras to introduce the public to a wide range of music that was unfamiliar. So there would be a whole season that included all the symphonies of Shostakovich, or uh, all, the seasons of Gust all the symphonies of Gustav Mahler, uh, or much more contemporary composers than either of those. And uh, the public was thrilled. Bernstein was able to come out and talk about these pieces with the audience, and uh, really created an atmosphere where the pioneering spirit ruled supreme. Always we were hearing new pieces, I say we, I wasn't really there in 1957, but uh, there were these new, new compositions by Roy Harris and William Schumann and uh, Lucas Foss, a whole new generation of American composers. What distinguished this new generation was that they had no ties to trying to create better symphonies by Beethoven or better symphonies by Brahms. They had broken away from these and chosen to explore as much as was possible what new musical languages could be discovered. And this fascinated Bernstein. It fascinated him endlessly. And he was able to communicate that fascination to his audiences. Around this time, he began to televise the series of lectures on the Omnibus series, and also initiated the Young People's Concerts, of which there were finally 53, uh, dealing with a whole variety of musical subjects. Who was Bach? What is counterpoint? What is melody? These captivated a whole generation of kids who turned into concert-going adults. And they, too, are all captured on video, if any of you are interested. You can, you can see them all. And what's wonderful is that the cameraman doesn't just focus on Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic, but pans across the audience. And you see children when Bernstein sits down at the piano, and they think he's going to play something which, because it's classical, is going to be boring. And then he launches into boogie woogie or rock and roll and shows how similar this is to Hector Berlioz and how that led to 
Gabrielle Faure, and there's just a whole uh, dialogue going on where you can see the participation of the audience. It's so thrilling. Bernstein uh, continued to seek for that synthesis of serious music and those compositional techniques and music that reached millions of people. The, the following year, after Candide, uh, in 1957, I think that the work that most successfully integrates everything that was inside of him uh, was composed, and that is, of course, West Side Story. West Side Story is not just another great musical. It is a, a masterpiece of avoidance, in a way. It avoids the operatic. It avoids the cliche music theater. It avoids trivial melody, but it avoids going into areas of composing that are too contemporary sounding. Now, you all know this tune. But you probably don't know that, in fact, Bernstein takes those first three notes, and works them into almost every piece in West Side Story. They're a code, they're like a little piece of DNA that create all kinds of pieces you didn't think. In the uh, overture, a little later it goes, well, what's that? It's with the top note put on the bottom. And uh, I, I put some stickets in for a few examples of this. All right, now you've heard this a lot, and you're welcome to sing it, but... Is that familiar? Okay, what is that if I break it down? Did you know that? No, you didn't know that. Could be, who knows? So what's this? It's with the first note put up an octave. Does it matter? No. But it's interesting that Bernstein was able to use this very 20th century compositional technique to create such a popular work of music theater. Here it's pretty obvious. So that's meeting Maria at the dance. But that Maria theme permeates, let's see, Uh, does this sound familiar? Boy, boy, crazy boy, and that's it. We'll come back to West Side Story in a bit, but I just wanted you to know that all of the techniques that he uses come from Stravinsky, from Paul Hindemith, from Bela Bartok, and when you hear West Side Story, you don't think about that for one second. You're swept along by fantastic, soaring melodies, by driving rhythms, and 
you don't need to think for a second, oh, that's a successful integration of popular Broadway techniques and modern classical. No, that's the genius of it. That's, that's why I say I feel this, this piece above everything integrates uh, all of Bernstein's genius into one thing. Now, he didn't feel that way. <laughs> he wanted to create uh, serious symphonic works and serious classical works, and he never gave up that quest. Uh, Bernstein's third symphony is called Kaddish. Now, the Kaddish is turned on its head in Bernstein's version. He has a narrator, and instead of a prayer, excuse me, <coughs> sorry, instead of a prayer to God for someone who has died, it's a prayer that we're saying for God who has died to modern civilization. So the narrator is, is doing a Kaddish for God, basically. Uh, the public reception of this work was uh, not so good. Um, I think that it threatened people who were spiritual and did not really interest people who, who were not. Uh, it was such a personal statement of Bernstein's that it would only have been as meaningful as it was to him to other people who had exactly the same um, spiritual crisis. That he, you know, it's kind of like that, that um, opera Marc Adamo wrote that was premiered in San Francisco a couple years ago about the gospel according to Mary Magdalene, which is a, a, an opera in which there's no virgin birth and um, the, the people who were devout Catholics were sort of mildly annoyed by it, and the people who were no longer practicing anything were just mildly bored by it. And um, you, have to, you have to speak to an audience of people who have the same feelings that you do if, if you're going to use language so much in a symphony. Uh, and so I think Bernstein realized this, and in his subsequent works, serious works, Although there were words, he relied much more heavily, again, on music and the language of music, which is, of course, a language everybody speaks. Um, there was a dean at the cathedral in Chichester in England who was a great lover of the arts. If the parish needed a new sculpture on the front lawn, he would call Henry Moore and say, would you like to make a lovely sculpture for us? And so when they needed a celebratory piece of music, they contacted Leonard Bernstein and uh, said, would you create something for us? And he said, um, you know, I'd be happy if it were like West Side Story. <laughs> so, so Bernstein obliged and uh, created a piece which is both rhythmic and uplifting and full of beautiful melody. Uh, I just remember a little bit of it. <laughs> Adonai, 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 Adonai,
So clearly a very tonal piece and uh, a step away from the more adventurous harmonic language of the second and especially the third symphony. I should be thinking about when we want to start doing a group sing-along of West Side Story. What time is it? <laughs> 8.30, yes. I think, I think it's time to move in that direction. Uh, so let's, let's just move to the end of Bernstein's life. Um, throughout his life, Bernstein continually had the opportunity to conduct the world's great orchestras, and he never, ever lost his love for this. Even more, though, than conducting the Vienna Philharmonic that he loved so much and the Israel Philharmonic that he had such an incredible bond with and, of course, the New York Philharmonic and the Boston Symphony, he loved to teach. And he loved to teach young players in orchestras. He had uh, an untiring energy to work with a section. I, I watched him once at the New World School of Music in. Miami, which Michael Tilson Thomas, one of Bernstein's protégés, founded. And uh, he worked with this orchestra on 28 bars from Brahms' Fourth Symphony for half an hour. First saying, we're going to play this at one quarter of the tempo. One quarter of the tempo. Okay, so that's... Can you imagine? And Michael Tilson Thomas was looking extremely nervous because once the orchestra had played about four notes at that tempo, he thought they were all going to be bored and angry and annoyed. But in fact, they were completely under Lenny's spell. And at the end of this half hour, they played this Brahms better than any orchestra in the world because he had shown them in every bow change how to extract the ultimate legato, the connection of the notes, not just tying them together, but how much in the middle of a note you got a little bit louder so that you could make the next note sound. In other words, he created one gigantic phrase out of these five minutes of Brahms. He felt three things above all, rhythm, harmonic change, and melodic arc. And uh, he could communicate those things, not just verbally in a rehearsal, but physically in a performance to the orchestra. And I think that's why orchestras loved playing under him so much. So again, if you want to see Leonard Bernstein in action, which is a fascinating thing, you need only go on your computer and type in Leonard Bernstein and type in the word Tanglewood. Tanglewood was established early in the century and it became the great teaching place and summer home of the Boston Symphony. And uh, you can see him working with individuals and most of all with the big orchestras. To see him working on the Rite of Spring, uh, which remained to the end of his life, one of his most favorite pieces. And I, I, you've probably all seen Fantasia, right? And he said, and here come the dinosaurs. <laughs> He's getting everybody to dig their Tyrannosaurus bows into their violins. You know, it, it remained something that was always fun and entertaining for him. It never became a sort of detached experience. All right, so toward the end, uh, Bernstein 
had the wonderful opportunity to conduct a group of German orchestras when the Berlin Wall came down. This was a year before he died. He died in 1990, and the wall came down in autumn of 1989. And so this huge combined orchestra and huge chorus performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, with, of course, a change that many of you may remember. He changed the word Freude, joy, to Freiheit, freedom. So instead of singing joy, divine spark of God, they sang freedom, divine spark of God. Freiheit, schöner Götter, Funken, Tochter aus Elysium. And uh, this was, of course, broadcast all over the world to 30 million people. <laughs> Still, at the end, the, the, the thing people would sing from Bernstein was not any of his symphonies or his chamber works or even his ballets, but, uh, but his Broadway works and most of all, West Side Story. So since you've been so patient and listening so quietly for an hour, it's time for you to cut loose. And um, <laughs> you've heard me sing, so the bar is really low. <laughs> and you're getting up and walking out. No, I don't know about that. All right, so we're gonna go. We're gonna go back to um, maybe maybe that piece. Da dum dum da dum dum. Who knows? And uh, you don't have to listen for the integration of contemporary music techniques with Broadway, or even for the theme of Maria, except when we sing Maria. Cannonballing down to the sky, gleaming its eye bright as a rose. Who knows? It's only just out of reach, down the block, on a beach, under a tree. I got a feeling there's a miracle do, gonna come true, coming to me. Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the latch. Something's coming, don't know when, but it soon catch the moon, one-handed catch. It's 
only just out of reach Down the block on a beach Maybe tonight The most beautiful sound I ever heard Maria Maria, Maria, Maria All the beautiful sounds of the world in a single word Maria, 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 Maria Maria, Maria, Maria I've just met a girl named Maria And suddenly that name the same to me. Maria, I've just kissed a girl named Maria, and suddenly I've Stop saying Maria, 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 Maria. beautiful sound I ever heard, Maria. You guys are terrific. but you ever and there's nothing for me but Maria every sight that I see is Maria Tony Tony always you every thought I'll ever know everywhere I go
saw you and the world went away Tonight, tonight, there's only you tonight What you are, what you do, what you say Just a world is a putting together international Bernstein celebrations for 2018 to celebrate his hundredth, his centennial, you know, his hundredth birthday. And um, he said, I hope that you, Santa Fe, will participate with the rest of the world in uh, honoring Bernstein by having some of his great pieces included on your concerts. And I thought, you know, we could do Chichester songs or we could do uh, some of these works that involve not only an orchestra, but a big chorus, and I think I would like to call on all of you when we do that. We're going to sing one more song. Okay, we'll sing somewhere, and, uh, and we'll call it an evening. There's a place for us Somewhere a place for us peace and quiet and open air 
to spare, time to look. Thank you all so much. Does anybody have questions they want to ask about Bernstein? Yes. What was his relationship like with Stephen Sondheim? Oh, by the way, do you all know who wrote the words that we were just singing to West Side Story? Stephen Sondheim, yeah. Well, Stephen Sondheim was such a bright guy, you know. And Bernstein, as I pointed out, was not just a wonderful composer. He loved word games and literature, and he found that this young Stephen Sondheim was even quicker and faster than he was, which far from making him jealous, made him eager to have Stephen Sondheim work with him. Uh, after West Side Story, there were no other collaborations in terms of works created together, but Sondheim and he remained lifelong friends. And, and a tremendous respect between the two, always. Yes. I have a vague memory that um, when he was when he was at Curtis, so was Barbara Minotti. Yes, that's true. That's true. Mm -hmm. What was that trio? <laughs> Minotti was there at uh, Curtis at the same time. How many pieces did he compose? Well, really over a hundred. Uh, you know, okay, the big ones are the symphonies, but then among the musicals, there's On the Town, there's Wonderful Town, there's Peter Pan, there's Candide, there's West Side Story, there's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He wrote a film score. Have everybody, anybody seen the Marlon Brando movie On the Waterfront? Okay, so that's a Leonard Bernstein's one film score, a great score. Uh, many songs. You know, it's funny because he did not win the Academy Award for uh, Best Score for a Motion Picture when he wrote. Uh, Tiomkin won it that year. And then in 1957, when he wrote West Side Story, he did not win the prize for the Best Broadway Musical. It was Meredith Wilson for The Music Man. But in a funny way, 
people weren't ready. <laughs> uh, I think that, that Bernstein was moving forward and uh, you know, the Music Man is a great musical that deserved to win that too, but how do, you, how do you judge between a great work written in a great tradition and a new work that's creating a whole new tradition? Yes? Yeah, wasn't he the first American conductor that became really famous worldwide? Beca exactly, yes. Uh, Bernstein was the first American conductor to, be to become an international star. And you know, in the same year that Van Cliburn was winning the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow, uh, it was the first year that, that uh, Leonard Bernstein had the New York Philharmonic there doing programs of both Soviet and American pieces. And, and really that was uh, such a, an incredible act of being an ambassador. But funnily enough, Bernstein was called up before the House Un-American Activities Committee because uh, he was always very open in his, in his liberal sentiments, and uh, he, along with a lot of other people, was branded as a probable communist. And uh, he had a whole speech prepared for the committee to tell them how real freedom involved self-expression, yada, yada, yada. And fortunately, Aaron Copeland got to him just before he went in there and said, you know, it would really be better if we had Leonard Bernstein for a few more decades, and if you would just... <laughs> <laughs> keep your, keep your uh, political sentiments to yourself because these people are not interested, Lenny. <laughs> Sorry, you had somebody over here had something. To... Yes? Uh, you didn't mention Bernstein's mass. I didn't. You know, it was for the Kennedy Center. And uh, he, he had, believe it or not, a long relationship with um, the Kennedy family which is not why he was doing this for the Kennedy Center. But um, when, when uh, he was being, after he'd been taken off the blacklist, he was still a little bit suspicious in some eyes. And uh, when he was going to be turned down for a symphony engagement, John Kennedy, who was then still a senator, uh, wrote a letter saying, please do the, you know, he, he opened the way for, uh, for Bernstein. And, um, Felicia Bernstein and Jackie Kennedy became good friends. Did Kennedy No, because that was after both, both John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were dead. But he, um, he wrote that mass for the Kennedy Center as a, an opening, an inauguration of that. Yeah. Yes. No, uh, that was before him, but he, he was uh, involved from early on and he quickly became one of the main fixtures there and a, a mentor for thousands of people, including you know, dozens of conductors who today are our big conductors. Okay, well thank you all. There's refreshments at the other end of the room.